0: Well, as we come forward, uh, we are going through the book of Judges. If you are new this morning, welcome. Uh, My name is Slim. I'm the associate pastor. Probably should have said that earlier. Um, We are going through the book of Judges, and we're very early into it. This is only the second sermon on it. So if you are brand new, you're getting on the ground floor. So you haven't missed much, though it was very good last week. Hope I didn't say that wrong. (laughs) But we are getting into the book of Judges, and Jeff uh, Jeff is doing his week-long, uh, all-day uh, doctorate classes, and so asked if I would be able to step in, and I'm happy to do so. But it's tough to prepare for sermons uh, when, you, when you are addicted. It's tough to prepare for sermons when you have something drawing your, your presence. It's tough to plan for things when you have uh, something that, that's beckoning you and drawing you to it like a drug. I know binging is bad, I know they say getting too much into something is a bad thing, but it's so fun. Just one more. I just need one more. It's so nice to be able to to just binge in this area because when I do, I don't have to worry about any of my problems. I can escape. I don't have to think about all the painful things in my life. And for this moment, I get to just be high. I get to check out. I I know... I shouldn't. I know it actually is going to have bad effects on me if I continue going after this addiction and continue going after this sin. But binging on Netflix over and over and over is so hard to stop. I'm a TV addict. Just one more show. Just one more. I know I've seen all the episodes of Office. Why do I need to watch it over and over and over again? Even when I know what the next line is going to be. Hey, I'm prison Mike. (laughs) (laughs) The worst thing about prison was the dementors. Like, (laughs) I love the line. And I can say it over and over and over. I'll still laugh because I'm addicted to it. It's 2.30 in the morning. Nothing good could come from watching another episode of Breaking Bad. Why? But I need to know what's going to happen next. And maybe it's not Breaking Bad. Maybe it's 24. And you have to figure out what Jack Bauer's doing, even though he's done it for eight, nine seasons, or whatever it may be. (laughs) Parks and Rec, House of Cards, The Walking Dead, whatever your show is, the responses that we have to continue watching these shows, uh, though it may forfeit a healthy lifestyle, though we may lose tons of sleep, we don't stop, because this is the habit of an addict. We can't stop and we say, just one more, and we're addicted to TV. Well, you may not be addicted to TV, but you're equally addicted to something. You have, equally have this, something has this captivating appeal. Something is irrational, but you must have it. The cravings seem irresistible, despite the fact of the negative consequences, that doesn't reform you. It doesn't change you. This is the cycle of an addict. I just have to have one more. And so from TV to alcohol to drugs to sex to money to success, we're all addicted to something because we're all addicted to sin. And we're going to see that here in Judges 2. Please stand for the reading of God's word.
1: Today's scripture is from Judges 2, 6 through 19. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, buried him north of the mountain of Gash. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The word of the Lord. Thanks
0: be to God. May be seated. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak, that you would speak through me. Father, that we would hear from you, would you grab your megaphone and shout uh, into this world uh, through your word and through myself, and people would hear from you and not me. And so, Lord, we ask that you would show us the severity of our situation this morning and the hope of a savior this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, so today's text is actually a, a trailer for the rest of the book. It's, uh, if you're watching a movie trailer, it's Here's What's to Come. The, the, today's text is the pattern for which all the other judges' episodes will now fit into. And so as we look at specific judges, we'll say, well, that, that's exactly what's going on here. And so right now we're talking in general about what the judges do. And what the people of Israel do, and we will be applying it for the rest of the semester. And so you really don't need to come back. Um, <laughs> but we see what, ha- what happens here. Yes, you do. We see what happens here. Then In verse 6, you see Joshua, he, he dismisses the people, and they go out, and they fill the land. They spread out, fill the land, They make little houses on the prairie, and everyone is happy all the rest of the days of their lives. Uh, they serve the Lord the rest of the days of their lives, as verse 7 reveals. And this group of people was this generation... That actually had seen what God had done for them, had actually seen God deliver them, and now they're the ones that are responding, saying, "After given what I've seen, I serve the Lord the rest of the days of my life." They they are responding to God God's intervention there, but interesting here, you see Joshua, he's like the great yardstick uh, that they, everyone would use to measure other Israelites by. Uh, it, You're not as good as Joshua. (laughs) Uh, Joshua got this very prominent presence in in Israelite history and that he got to be buried in the promised land. Many, many, many uh, huge figures before him didn't get this opportunity. They even asked, uh, Joseph even asked asked that his bones would be carried through the desert to be buried into the promised land, which was a very odd request, but they did it. So they carried a bag of bones around (laughs) and buried it in the promised land. Joshua gets that blessing while, while there, and he gets buried north of Mount Gash. <laughs> I love the way it just, just, I want to name my next son Gash Thompson. Uh, <laughs> it's a beautiful word. I love that mountain. But then something curious happens. This generation was the leave it to beaver generation. Everything seem, is seemingly going well. Everyone follows the Lord. Everyone, all the days of their lives. You think, this is it? God needs to return the promised land. And then all of a sudden, we see something very odd here. It says, the generation after them doesn't know the Lord. Or the works that he had done for Israel. And you think, how do how the kids not know what God had done for them? That's very odd. How, do the, how, do, how does the next generation not know? Do they not know about it? Or is it the fact that they knew it with their heads But not with their hearts. It was they understood it, but it wasn't precious to them. It's like the the Mumford song "Winter Winds." Uh, My head told my heart, my heart told my head to let love grow, but my head told my heart this time, no. Maybe you know that song. (laughs) Uh, There's a disconnect between our head and our heart, and so I understand it, but it's not precious to me. And this is nothing new. This is not, nothing new uh, between generations. Uh, the uh, adults, all these these meddling kids these days, <laughs> they don't get it. Uh, but we think about the, you see like the 50s, which you would think would be like the peak of moral, uh, the the moral compass of America. You think that's when America was on track. But the 50s produced the 60s, which produced the 70s, which produced the 80s. And you say, okay. So... Maybe not the proudest moment in America in terms of the moral compass. I mean, great hair bands, yes. <laughs> not really knowing the Lord so much. Not really known for that. But some of the responsibilities on the parents to teach their, 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 their kids this way. Deuteronomy tells them that. Uh, tells the, the parents uh, that we're to be teaching our sons and our sons' sons these things. And not in a way of just preaching to them. Or playing a sermon uh, and saying, get it. This is for you. Uh, that, that can be abusive. No, it's, it's a very natural way in Deuteronomy. It says, talk, talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so the image is clear. Uh, the way we pass down to the generation is a very organic as you go way in every sphere of life. And so it's actually a bigger picture of viewing uh, how to pass on the faith to our, to our children. But regardless of how this generation didn't get it, whether it was the parents or the kids, hard hearts, hearts, they didn't get it. And the judge's sin cycle is now beginning. The judge's sin cycle is, is in a sense, the theme for the rest of this book. We, we, we subtitled uh, our, our series here, Judges, Sons of Anarchy, uh, which would be another show you could probably binge watch on Netflix as well, <laughs> because it depicts who the people of Israel are. They're not the son that you show off at your Christmas party. They're the son that's all tatted up and has drug, and, and is drugged out and you're almost embarrassed of. But here's the thing. We're not embarrassed of them because it's us. The sons of anarchy are Israel. Israel is us. We are the sons of anarchy. We are the sons of anarchy. This is you and me because our life is chaos. It's anarchy if we're honest with ourselves if we look at, the book, if, look at our lives and we're saying, that's me. The book of Judges is almost uh, like watching an R-rated movie and saying, that's me. <laughs> Tells us what it means to be human, that we're flawed, that we're sinful, that we're disloyal anarchists making our own cookbooks on ways to rebel. This is the book of Judges and saying, this is the sons of anarchy and this is us. The Judges sin cycle is a little easier for us to understand when we think of it in more of a modern word instead of sin cycle. We say addiction. The Book of Judges deals with addictions, with an addiction to sin. And the the addiction cycle and the sin cycle is simply this: sin, slavery, salvation. Sin, slavery, salvation. Hit repeat. Over and over again, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And you may say, okay, what did the people do that was so bad? God says what they did was they, they became evil. You think evil, you might think like a horror movie evil, something as gross and ugly as evil. You might think Lord Voldemort or Sauron as evil. What did they do that made them evil? They served idols Baals and Astaroth. Baal is the Canaanite word for Lord or mini Lord, uh, it's the Canaanite god of weather. And for an agricultural society, that's a pretty big thing. If you, if you don't have rain, you don't have crops. You don't have crops, you don't have food. If you don't have food, you don't get money. And so Baal now controls whether you eat and whether you have money. It's a big, it's a big mini-god. Astaroth, very uh, popular local goddess of fertility, uh, and the way to worship her was very different. Uh, you would go into her temple, and in front of her statue, and you would have sex. And she would decide whether to bless you with a, a child or not. To bless you with, con- the con- with conception. And you think, okay, that's a little odd, a little weird. But for them, this is huge. Because children are huge. Children provide security. They provide social security. They, when they grow up, they take care of you. They also provide protection. So if, if your town doesn't have children, and the next town does, they can overtake you. So children are a big deal. And so the people of Israel bowed down to Baals and Astroth. In a sense, they bowed down to health and wealth. They bowed down and they worshiped money, food, pleasure, and sex. You say, that sounds very selfish. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> that's idolatry. They worship themselves. Idolatry is when we live for something else. That's not God. Whenever you look to some created thing to give you what only God can give you, that is idolatry. Let me say that again. Whenever you look to some created thing to give you what only God can give you, that is idolatry. And you say, is that something only inferior cultures struggle with? Like, how, how silly. Of course that statue can't help you conceive. Of course Baal has no bearing on the, on the weather clouds. Of course not. Well, that's not just their problem, because their real problem was not just uh, the, the weather clouds. Their real problem was money. Their real idol was, I wanted money. I want pleasure. We don't struggle with money, right? We don't ever cling to money like that's our existence. We don't ever hoard it and become hoarders of our own money. And we don't, our, especially the American culture, never struggles with sex, right? No. We live for created things that only can God can give. And th- for those of us who don't really claim to be uh, Christians, who have not uh, count ourselves that way, what do you live for? This is true of uh, of you as well. We say, well, "I don't live for anything," but I'm passionate about. I'm fixated on maybe my career, my grades, this guy, this girl, the idea of marriage. That might be your God. That's worship. Worship doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings, right here. Worship happens all the time. And all the time, we are worshiping something else and someone else besides the one true God. And here's where the most painful part about uh, the judge's sin cycle happens it's slavery. This is the scariest part. In verse 14, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And so we see that the people of Israel literally go into slavery, that God literally gives them over to slavery, but then we also see that they actually respond with spiritual slavery. Here Israel's response uh, as a different form of slavery in verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them and then in 17, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. All sin leads to slavery. Even after the deliverance, they return back to the vomit. They return back to what had enslaved them. Becky Pipper uh, was quoted saying, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And this is very profound. This is very profound because it reveals the severity of the situation, of how bad it actually is. Those who choose, they may choose to sin. They may choose to enter into this addiction, but now they're addicted. Now they're stuck. Like stuck in quicksand. Hooked. This means there's a reason. There's a reason why you're stuck. There's a reason why you can't quit pornography. There's a reason why you can't stop messing around with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Because you now worship the God of romance or sex. You worship it and therefore you're addicted to it and therefore you get enslaved by it. Same thing true with alcohol. Say, I'm not really a, I'm not really a slave to alcohol. I, I can stop whenever I want. Okay. Well, I don't really want to. There's a reason. Your heart says, I, I love it, I worship it, I need it, and therefore I'm, a, I'm enslaved by it. The fact that you don't want to stop reveals the slavery because these idols begin to own you. And so alcohol may own you. Romance may own you. Money may own you. And well, how do you know if you're an addict? Tim Keller has some helpful questions. We borrowed from him, and we put in the back of your uh, bulletin for further questions of discussion. You guys can use for after lunch, uh, or in your own small groups or whatnot. He says, "Do you struggle to answer yes to either of these questions? Do you struggle to answer yes to either of these questions? Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area?" Am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area? If the answer is no, it's revealing an idol. If the answer is no, it's revealing an idol. Another way to tell if you you might be addicted to something do you feel trapped in this area? Do you feel out of control? We can be addicted to so many things. We can be addicted to alcohol, anger, love, weightlifting, sleep, nicotine, pain, TV, exercise, gambling, cocaine, work, sports, sugar, people, sex, caffeine, shoplifting, lying, chocolate, risk-taking, success, or winning. And the problem with all of these addictions, the problem with all of these sins is that they actually provide some, some form of pleasure. You wouldn't do it if, you did, if they didn't feel good. They actually respond in a very positive way for the short term. We, sh- we shouldn't be surprised. And in some cases, they actually alter your bodily, uh, the way your body is made up. And this is no true, even more true in, in the, the drug of meth. Someone who takes meth, their body is now changed to need it. They entered into it. Now they're really enslaved by it. They're addicted to it. We see this in many other, add- many other substances that we abuse We become reliant on it, enslaved by it. But all of these things, they provide in the short term something very promising. They provide that you'll be more alert, more calm, less shy, more powerful. And here's the thing, they promise to do it now. This is why no one's really ever addicted to vitamins. It takes a while. But you get addicted to Valium real quick. Cutting releases pain now. It takes a while. The short term outweighs the long term effects. The short term is what we see here in Israelite and here in the Judges. The sons of anarchy, that's all we are looking at is the short term. They commit to worshiping Baals and they get sold into physical and spiritual slavery. And they're stuck. And despite the trauma, despite the pain, they're an addict and they can't get out. Proverbs 23 says, do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Edwell says, it's all there. It's all there. The captivating appeal, the irrationality, the cravings, irresistible, and the fact that the bad consequences don't reform the the thinker, that's an addict. The cravings are real and they feel like itches that must be scratched. I have to have it. Oh, it itches. I need it. For the addict, dope is God. For the addict, the supreme being, the higher power in the, is, is God, That is dope. In that junkie's life, he's subjugated to its will. He follows its commandments. The drug is the definition of happiness and gives the meaning of love. Welch goes on to say, each shot of junk in his veins is a shot of divine love and it makes the addict feel magnificent with the grace of God. And in case you're thinking this sermon is only geared towards drug abusers, this is true of you too. This is true of me too. Everyone, everyone has the problem of saying, just one more, just one more. Just one more hand of M and M's. That's all I need. It's the same strategy of a substance abuser. If I can only have dessert after every meal, I know this is true. Food was my idol. Food is my idol. I'm an addict and I'm a recovering addict. (laughs) I'm thankful for the redemptive gospel care team. Uh, Last week in our Sunday school uh, class, we were reading an article, a beautiful article on body image and the author Amy Patrick says, she was grateful for her struggles with food and body image because God in his great mercy used them to bring her to the end of herself. Profound thing. She was thankful for her struggles with food and body image because it brought her to the end of herself. Thankful for something very painful that brought her to the end of herself. So it wasn't any more about what I could do. I now have to ask for someone to step in. Sounds very much like what Barbara Dugan would say. <laughs> Thankful that God would step in in spite of the, the pain that's in front of me. She says, I didn't struggle with food because I simply needed more information about healthy eating. I was an expert at counting calories, measuring portion sizes, and making healthy choices. And I didn't struggle with my weight because I was lazy or uninformed about exercise. At my heaviest, I was exercising rigorously on a daily basis. Here's the problem. I overate to escape from the tremendous pressure I felt to perform and please in order to have the approval of others. I overate because I believed I needed the comfort of food in times of stress, sadness, or anxiety. That's me. <laughs> I hear her. The idol says, If you have me, then you'll have happiness. Things are stressful, escape here. Paul calls out my idol in Philippians and says, Their God is their belly. Israel bows down bows downs to Baals and Asterus, and I bow down to my stomach, to food. It's a slave master and there's no breaking free. And yet I choose to worship it. I'm addicted to it. We are addicted to our sin. But it gets worse. (laughs) Not only is idolatry sin, all idolatry is adultery. Make sense? All idolatry is adultery. As our passage uses very strong language here, verse 17 Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods, or they prostituted themselves after other gods. And God wants to tell you and me that our offenses aren't just sins against the great Almighty. Yes, they are. They are are sins against the great Almighty, but they're more than that. They are relationship breakers. They are breaking the covenant vow of marriage with our bridegroom, Jesus We have an exclusive marriage with him, a very deep, intimate, passionate marriage with him, with a man who has selfless love for us, and yet we commit adultery and go after other gods and break that marriage vow, and as it says, whore after other gods. One counselor tells a confession of an addict who literally has marriage issues because of his addiction. He says, my wife said to me that I was going to have to make a choice Either cocaine or her. Before she finished the sentence, I knew what was coming, so I told her to think carefully about what she was going to say. It was clear to me that there wasn't a choice. I love my wife, but I'm not going to choose anything over cocaine. It's sick, but that's what things have come to. Nothing and nobody comes before my coke. I love my wife. But nothing comes between me and my idol. You see the, the marriage vow being broken there? And so we see our addiction is, is a lordship problem. It's a relationship problem. And say, who is your master? Who is your spouse? Jimmy Eat World, a band, has a song called Drugs or Me. And it's saying, uh, who are you going to choose? The drugs are me. And saying, choose one. How do you choose? If you're addicted, how do you choose if you're enslaved? If you're stuck? How is it possible to break that cycle of addiction? It's simple. You do nothing. These people need rescue. Verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. God hears them. And responds with a judge. And a judge is not like the judges we think now. The judges are not the ones that we think are sitting in the courtroom with a gavel uh, making decisions. Their judges are military heroes. So God sends not not someone to sit in in the courtroom. He sends a hero to come. You you can think of like an Avenger. He sends an Avenger to come. Like the Hulk. And sometimes these guys are like the Hulks. Uh, Some of them are like Captain America. He sends that hero to come. And to save these people who are addicted to their sin. Did they need to beg for mercy before God would send these heroes to them? It says, because of their groaning. That groaning is not them with a repentant heart saying, Lord, forgive me, save me. That groaning is just their pain at what sin is causing them. The pain of sin itself. They're just groaning in pain, and God hears their groan as addicted sons of anarchy, and He steps in in spite of them, in spite of themselves. The addict does nothing here. God intervenes before they request for help, which is ridiculous news. (laughs) But that's Reformed theology. At the very basic, God steps in before they request help. God is the first mover, not the first responder. Odd to think about and profound for us that for those of you who feel stuck today, what you need, you may need some AA classes, you may need some people to encourage you and talk with you, but the first thing you need is rescue. The first thing we need is rescue. For those who are trying to minister someone who is stuck, what they need is rescue. Amy Patrick from that article went on to say, in regards to her own food addiction, the greatest need of a person caught in a trap is rescue not a strategy for trap management. I know I'm stuck. Yeah, but you're stuck. I know I'm stuck. I need help. (laughs) This is beautiful for those of us caught in a trap. I know the right and wrong, but I don't have the power to change it. I need a hero. I need a rescuer. And just shouting at the person saying, stop it, doesn't help. So no pleas, no tears, no arguments or threats. These won't penetrate. Reason is actually useless here. They can't simply just say, stop doing it. What they need is a rescue. If someone is drowning, they don't need someone to tell them how to swim. They need someone to dive in there and save them. This is the picture of the sons of anarchy. So how does God rescue you and me today? How does God rescue you? He sends his judge. He sends his war hero, his redeemer, and we need something better than the book of Judges can offer. We need a, we need a hero better than what the book of Judges can offer. Because after each of these judges, they all die. We need a better hero than what the book, the, we need a more permanent leader, one that can deliver the soul as well as the body. And we won't find that hero, that judge in the book of Judges. And so how does God rescue us? He rescues us by revealing to us the beauty of his son. Revealing to us the beauty of his son and making him more beautiful making him more beautiful and making him outshine the low-lit lamp of your pet sins. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus again. What do we need? We need the blood of Jesus to come in and overwhelm us. As we see the rescue of this better hero in Jesus, we get weaned off the shallow highs that can be offered to us. So as we look at sacrificial love for me, it changes me. That sacrificial love becomes sweeter than honey, sweeter than cocaine, sweeter than my addiction, than my idol, than my my addiction to to pleasure, whatever it may be. This is what we mean when we say, let's apply the gospel to every area of our life. You may have heard us say that, let's apply the gospel here. What does that look like? Well, if I'm truly loved and I'm truly cared for, I don't need to seek your, your, your approval. If I, if I feel so loved by my, my bride, by my spouse, Jesus Christ, I don't have to seek it out in these relationships. I don't have to seek it out in unhealthy ways. If I have nothing to earn and nothing to prove, then I can rest and I don't have to be a control freak. I don't have to have money be my idol. And say, if only I had this much money, then I'll be secure. I can actually give it away freely. See, the gospel applied to every area of our life rips us up from our idols and rescues us. So that's the cycle. The sin, slavery, salvation. And a good sermon would probably end here. But it's not a good sermon. (laughs) The, The sad thing is that a cycle repeats itself. Verse 19 kind of throws this whole thing off and makes things really odd. Verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods and serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. You say, what? No, you were saved. They went into relapse. This is the tough thing about a a cycle is that it repeats and it's on a loop. This is the picture of the downward spiral of sin. And that what once gave me the high, now is not enough? I have to go even further. They become more corrupt than they were before. They have to go further and further to get that same high. Further and further to feel that much pleasure, to feel that satisfied. That's the downward spiral of sin. And we say, we go further than we ever thought we would. But here's the beautiful thing about that cycle. God goes further than you ever thought he would. It's a cycle. Sin, slavery, salvation. And you sin worse, and you're even more enslaved, and God saves you again and again. And so the judge's sin cycle reminds us that God's work as a rescuer is not a one-time thing. It's a process. It's going to happen over and over again. The life raft of rescue is offered daily for an addict like you and me. And so God isn't done with you yet. That's the good news. Is that good news? I hope so. (laughs) So you have every reason for hope. You have every reason for hope to believe that I may be struggling here, but I know I have a rescuer that will rescue me in spite of my sin. Not that I have to work myself up to be saved. He will save me in spite of myself. God will work in you and the people around you. And so as we start to think about how to minister to people around us too, we know that they don't just need steps on saving. They need a savior. Let me pray.